This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Welcome, everyone. It's great to see everybody this afternoon. Uh, I'm going to start off by giving a thank you to our sponsor for this breakout. You can go ahead and grab that brochure that's on the chair in front of you. And for those of you watching online, I want to direct your attention to Reformed Theological Seminary, our wonderful sponsor for this breakout. Um, they, uh, specifically the brochure you've got here, and you can check out, we'll hear more from, from Karen about this as well, the Edmiston Center. You can learn more about them. Oh, Karen's modeling it. This is lovely. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's well done. Uh, you can also visit the booth for Reformed Theological Seminary over there in the exhibit hall, and also check them out online at rts.edu. And again, we'll hear more from Karen about the Edmondson Center through RTS. All right, so you are, you're here uh, joining us for a, a live podcast episode with Gospel Bound, which I host through the Gospel Coalition. Uh, but let me just kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about here today as Christ Church continues to expand around the world, so does persecution. And that's what we're going to talk about here on this live episode of Gospel Bound. I am the host, Colin Hansen. I serve as Vice President of Content and Editor-in-Chief of the Gospel Coalition. And in this podcast, in Gospel Bound, we keep looking until we see God working. We keep looking until we see God working. He's not limited by our awareness of what he's doing, but our faith expands as we discover what he's already been doing. Uh, today we're going to be discussing how God's people fight for faith when it, co- when it can cost them their lives. And we're going to learn how other Christians can support them in prayer and advocacy. We're going to do that through our two distinguished guests. Let's start on the far end, my friend Corey Porter. She is the CEO of Christian Solidarity Worldwide, graduated from the University of Mississippi, completed her MA in Theological Studies with an emphasis in Religion and Society from Princeton Theological Seminary. She has been published in His Testimonies, My Heritage, and The End Campaigns, A New Narrative on Abortion, Pro-Woman and Pro-Child. She has 13 years of experience in campus ministry, serving most recently on the campus of Princeton University. Thanks, Corey. Good afternoon, guys. Hey, everybody. Let's give her a, give her a hand. 
Also joined then by Karen Ellis, who is passionate about theology, human rights, and global religious freedom. She is the director of the Edmiston Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. Since 2006, she has collaborated with the Swiss-based organization International Christian Response and travels internationally advocating for global religious freedom. She is a PhD candidate in world Christianity and ethics at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in England. Hey, Karen, hey. thanks for being here. All right, so, I mean, I think you're likely prepared for the, the kind of content we're gonna be discussing, which is gonna be fairly heavy. Um, it, it's where the, it's where our faith meets the difficulties that take us all the way back to the prophets of the Old Testament that takes us all the way back to, to Christ himself and certainly the early church and really a narrative that continues all the way through church history in different ways. Uh, but let's start out, Corey, just help us understand what, what first gave you a passion to advocate for the persecuted church. Yeah, I think this is one of my favorite questions that you wrote. <laughs> Because I think when we oftentimes think about the persecuted church, we don't oftentimes think about how we fall into that narrative of why we would have a passion for it. Um, Colin, I don't think you actually know this, that my testimony is kind of tied to like a Pauline experience. Um, I did not yeah, know this, but I'm Pauline excited to learn. Nature. Now, Karen's mentored me since forever, so spiritual mom, she knows all things. Um, <laughs> but when I was coming up in Mississippi, I my testimony is very much um, in the streets, if you will. And so got kicked out of high school around 18 years old and had a really crisis um, in my life. And so coming off of drugs, trafficking drugs, just really didn't know what to do in this world. And God was so gracious to me um, that make, to make a very long story short that he sent two campus ministers with the gospel into my life and it changed it forever. And so there's something about realizing and seeing Christ for who he is and the power of Christ and the anointing of Christ and the glory of Christ that just takes drugs out of your mouth. It takes the desire of the flesh out of your mouth. And so with that type of passion in my heart, I can truly understand how someone who is being persecuted under so much suffering and things that we would not, we, I mean, you think about your life and you're like, man, I would never want to give up my family or put my family in harm's way, or I would never be able to go through that. But when you're glorying upon a savior and you see something past yourself and something so transcendent, you push through. Although we have not yet seen him, we love him. And so I think my passion honestly is tied to my testimony, which is that I have a savior who loved me. And I can see that the people who are persecuted in this world love our savior and they see him. Um, so I think that's my tie and my passion to advocate for them. Wow, that's exciting. I know. <laughs> she knows this guy. She disciples me. It's so good to hear it every time. <laughs> I mean, now let me hear. Tell us a little bit more, though, Corey. You, you've why the switch from campus ministry than into this role? Yeah, campus ministry was the Lord's choice, um, not my own. Because I came to faith through campus ministry, the Lord just kind of pushed me through that way. Um, I wanted to be seminary trained, so I went to RTS to start off. And long story short, Kevin D. Young um, came down, gave a sermon. He mimicked and, and mocked Piper, to be honest. And it was funny, and I love jokes. So I was like, oh, I like you. We hit it off, and he offered me my first job. And so from that moment on, the Lord has just shaped me through relationships with young people. And I'm glad because it stopped me from being curmudgeonly and allowed me to always remember the day of my salvation. Those kids come to faith and they are on fire. And that's the type of tie that we have to have when we advocate for the persecuted church. We have to be on fire for our love for Christ. And campus students got it tenfold. 
That's great. Well, Karen, how did you get going on this path and this advocacy work? So uh, it's been a blessing to watch Corey grow into uh, advocacy for the persecuted church uh, because I honestly, at times when you're advocating for a minority of a minority of a minority, mm -hmm. you feel like you're speaking into a void. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I was talking about uh, the persecuted church for years uh, and then you know, walking alongside Corey, and then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. she came up with this burden mm -hmm. that had been fomenting for a long time, also for the persecuted church. And I realized I hadn't been speaking into a void um, that uh, she had picked up on a lot of the burdens and the concerns and the the things I was learning from the persecuted church. I spent time in Eastern Europe just after the Iron Curtain fell, mm -hmm. and so I was maybe six months old in the Lord. And all of a sudden, I was exposed for two years living in, actually in Ukraine, I was exposed to a people who were rediscovering what it meant to have freedom of religious expression. Mm -hmm. And coming out of, uh, you know, an, an, a persecuted and underground church reality into religious freedom. So it was, it was really formative for me to see that transition for them. Uh, at the same time, while I was in Eastern Europe, a book fell into my hands by a pastor named Richard Wormbrand. Ah, I see a lot of heads nodding. Yes, Richard Wormbrand, who uh, established Voice of the Martyrs. And so his, everybody, all my friends were reading like Heinz Feet on High Places, and I was reading Tortured for Christ, right? <laughs> and and it, it, it shaped me. And I just thought I, I came away from that with a very romantic um, unreal view of what it was like to live under persecution, but it started me on a journey and uh, developed a burden in my heart to understand why someone would love God that much. That even they would even work through pain, physical pain, through torture, through um, in incredibly like things that your flesh would rail against, but still hold on to their faith in Christ. Um, I ended up in Christian radio for about for a number of years, and I ended up doing um, uh, advertising and production work for an organization called International Christian Response that has served the persecuted for 50 years, and um, they're based in Switzerland, also called HMK, uh, and I started working with them. I ended up on their board, and I wanted to take a more active role with them, so they made me an advocate graciously and I had an enormous learning curve because you're talking about many different regions in the world, many different politics, uh, political situations, many, and all these, all these different histories that inform individual situations of persecution. And so I've been blessed that they've walked with me on that journey. They've trained me, they've um, educated me, and here I am continuing to advocate for the persecuted church. Well, I really enjoyed, Karen, just talking over lunch about history, revival, all these things that you and I have both studied extensively, longed to see in the church today mm -hmm. as well. Just how can, we, how can we work together, seek the Lord together for these things in our day? And part of what was included in that is you and I just went back and forth with all kinds of different contemporary and historical figures um, in the church who've suffered persecution. Uh, share, give us an example of one figure in particular who suffered or kind of endured under persecution from the historical church that 
who inspires you today? Everybody pick up your brochure. <laughs> so um, RTS has provided us with, and, and uh, the Edmiston Center has provided us with us with these uh, wonderful brochures about the center where uh, we actually study the theology of Christian endurance and develop ideas around them. We hear from people all over the world. And I'm going to say that the, the people for whom the Edmiston Center is named obviously have had a deep impact on me. It's named for Alonzo and Althea Edmiston. And they were African-American missionaries, one generation after slavery. They both attended HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities. They went, one, he went to Stillman, which was a preacher's college in the, in the South. And she went to Fisk, uh, Fisk University. And they both had a burden to go to Congo. And so they actually did not meet in the South. They didn't meet in Selma. They didn't meet at Tuskegee. They met in Congo and they married. And then they experienced persecution as Christians as a part of the first African-American-led missionary team to the continent. And they were Presbyterians. Whoop, whoop, pres okay. Uh, <laughs> No blood. Shameless. Uh, <laughs> shameless. I'm shameless. But what they experienced when they were there, now they're one generation removed from slavery, so their parents had been enslaved. They were emancipated in 1865. They get to Congo and they experience the atrocities of King Leopold II. And there's uh, incredible oppression happening of the, 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 the folks who lived in Congo, the Congolese, and uh, also the African rubber trade and also the Arab slave trade. So they took what they had learned at their historically black college and they, t they developed faith work projects. Uh, they were, they fled for their life many times uh, along with their team. It was a team of about 15 of them. And um, they stayed there and actively worked in um, social engagement and gospel engagement. And she created, she actually took the language. It didn't have a grammar. She created the first grammar for the uh, for their language of the uh, the, the uh, locals there. So there's just a lot to admire about the legacy that they left in Congo and that they experienced persecution themselves with two perspectives: having been an oppressed minority, uh, their parents having been an oppressed minority, and then going and taking what they learned from that situation and how Christianity applied and seeing others set free, both physically and spiritually. So that was Heart of Darkness era Congo, then Joseph Conrad's famous work yeah. about that. Wow. Okay, Corey. <laughs> well, it's hard to follow up. I'm going to do an easy layup on this one, um, and it is true to my heart, which is uh, Stephen, guys. Who does not love the story of Stephen, this faithful, faithful man who falls um, in the in disciples' way to be able to bring Christianity to this world and to be able to be help the early church to establish? And what I love in Acts 7, um, and it's again tied to kind of my own testimony, is that when he's getting ready to be stoned and the Sanhedrin is angry and are gnashing their teeth, right? Mm. He looks up. Yeah, Ain't that redemption. something? Yeah. He looks up. And it says that he looked up full of the Holy Spirit and being full of the Holy Spirit, he saw the glory of God and the son sitting at the right hand of the father. And so there is something so powerful and beautiful that I believe there's a special grace mm -hmm. that God gives the persecuted. 
And so I admire those men of the faith who in scripture, and just very quickly, I know you're going to move on. Um, you should look up the story of Perpetua and Felicity. Mm -hmm. um, some of the first early writings of martyrdom that we see is actually her own narrative of being in prison um, and dying for her savior as well as a mother, um, new mother, um, gives her life over um, to, to proclaim Christ in um, top of Africa under Roman rule. I don't know why this didn't occur to me before this, um, before I was planning this session, but I, I serve and teach through Beast and Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm sure you saw this when you're recently visiting, but yeah. we have, we have busts of 20th century martyrs from every continent um, in our worship space at Hodges Chapel there, and then we have a whole or kind of a cloud of witnesses in our mm. dome above, and did you notice who was up there, Perpetua? Oh and Felicity oh, wow. are in the dome up there with Martin Luther and with, you know, John Calvin and, and all those different people up there. So I, you know, it's interesting. I teach one of the, the, the course that I teach primarily at Beeson Divinity School is on cultural apologetics. And a lot of people might think, okay, so that's about how we, I don't know, ingratiate ourselves to the culture or speak the culture's language, contextualization. I help people right off the bat, and what do we start with? <laughs> After we do basic stuff on apologetics and contextualization and theological vision, we go to persecution, mm. we go to Perpetua and Felicity, and we read her account, yes. and we talk about you know, the interactions with her father, yes. you know, the exchange with her father, and things like that. And, and um, I was just like, you can't talk about cultural engagement unless you start from the premise that yeah. Our Savior told us that if we followed Him, we would be persecuted. Yeah. Amen. So you start with that perspective. It helps you to kind of know you're on the right track. If, um, Kevin and others will say this a lot, that you, you know you're on the right track. If, I mean, if people hate you too much, well, then maybe you're doing something wrong. If everybody loves you, you're probably doing something <laughs> wrong. But just that's what 1 Peter 2.12 and others promise us, that as we follow Christ, this is what Stephen and the other apostles saw, right, is that as they were being persecuted, people were believing. Yeah. They always seemed to go hand in hand. And now, now I'll start with you, um, Corey, on this question. And it, it, it might be an incredibly dumb question, but um, I, I still think it's helpful to ask about religious freedom. Why do, we, why do we advocate for that? Because when we're reading the New Testament, it seems so obvious that not only was this normative, but also, as I just said, it was told that we would, we should absolutely, all of us expect it. So why advocate for something that we kind of, I don't know, was, wasn't necessarily in the minds of the apostles yeah. and Jesus. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I believe that was a language you put in the notes. You said the seed yeah. of the martyrs. Well, I've got that one. Well, that, that's another question I had, which let's, let's start with that one because... You guys may be familiar with that with that concept of of the, the comment that the seed of the martyrs or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and I do think there's a romantic notion about the persecuted church. And whenever I, I hear that, I say, well, clearly when you look at Christ Himself, His blood is certainly the seed of the church. And I think when we look at Stephen and we and we look all the way through to Peter's um, supposed crucifixion and things like that, we can see that. But then. Of course, you think about the great Christian civilization of North Africa, yeah. which obviously has not existed for a long time yeah. through persecution. Um, yeah, what, do you, what do you say about that, about those notions of, 
you know, persecution is almost like a mission strategy for the church. How do you, how do you hold those things in tension? I'll ask you that yeah, one, Corey. That, that's interesting because I don't know if those who are currently being persecuted would appreciate the language that they must die in order for the gospel to be going forth. Right. I think that they would say their savior has already died for this world. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, I do believe that we though in America have the ability and the privilege to step back for a moment. And in our privilege, we're able to say, what does that mean? What, how do I understand that? And that language from Tertullian, the seed of the martyrs, um, blesses the church, I realize is historical context. So if you think about in a Roman empire, he's under the rule of a, of a, of a, of a deity-like emperor who wants to kill Christians. But if you go one more, one more century early, uh, later with Const uh, Constantine, he comes into power and you see that silence. So that language wouldn't even hold weight one more century later. So when Constantine comes in, the first Christian emperor who goes on and makes the Roman Empire Christian itself, he stops that language by issuing an edict called the Edict of Milan. And so I think historically, as we see, the church goes in and throughout the ebbs and flows of historical context. So in some spaces, when in exile, I think we can anticipate persecution. Um, as you see it in the book of Daniel with the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. However, I do think there are often other times when Christians are in rule and in power. And in those dynamics, I don't know that persecution would be the right space or the current space to ha um, that would hold weight within the church. Mm. Um, but to your point, it is inevitable that the church will face persecution. And you've alluded to it so many times and even quoted it in First Peter. Um, I was reading for this panel and I love the language that he starts with. He says, to God's elect who were pretty much chosen exiles. And he goes on to say that that chosen exile people group, guys were chosen in foreknowledge of God, preordained to be persecuted essentially. And so you have to, we do have to realize that there is something of God's provision and his preordained that his church would go through. But I like what Paul says in Philemon's, my God, if you can't get your freedom, why would you not? Right. And so there's a sense of when you do have these constraints of the human rule that's happening, you must suffer. You, you may suffer, but also if you can have a, a advocate, if you can have a human rights group that would alleviate the suffering of the church, my God, we should advocate for that and, and strengthen the power of Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. He's given that, that, that ability to do so. So Paul, Paul would be our example there, right? Paul was, Paul suffered many things and he believed that those sufferings were advancing the kingdom. Yeah. And at the same time, when he had a chance to work through the system, legal yeah. system of the Roman Empire, he availed himself yeah. those opportunities and testified to the gospel at the highest levels there. I think a good question that comes out of that, too, is why do some people, some Christians, have religious freedom and others do not? Mm. And yet, God advances the gospel through both situations. Through both, yeah, situations. absolutely. And, uh, and so that gives us the question of what responsibility, you know, as people living in the freer world, what responsibility do we have to, you know, our local body, but also to the global body who doesn't have religious freedom? Uh, and so that's, that's, that's something provocative that grows out of that. And also, how are we defining persecution? Mm -hmm. So we tend to think of persecution as the most extreme, you know, just death, martyrdom, right. uh, torture and, and terror. And, and it is those things. But, you know, scripture gives us a range of, you know, you'll be hated, insulted all the way to martyrdom and loss of life. And so, you know, when you kind of look at the biblical definition of, uh, of persecution, it sort of changes that conversation. Do you think then that you could say at any level American Christians are persecuted? 
that's a great question because I'm very careful. Uh, I'm like, uh, oh, that's, that's why I'm, that's why I'm asking. I'm very careful with that um, because we do. So, you know, if the, the, the statistics are still correct from a few years ago, you know, 75% of the world or 380 million Christians, one in seven, lives under some form of restriction. Mm. We're the 25% mm. technically in the freer world. Mm. But that's not to say that there aren't people in the freer world whose families are rejecting them because they're coming to faith in Christ or because they're taking hard stands for the gospel. That's not to say that there are individuals uh, who, are be, who may lose employment because they take a hard stand for the gospel. So if you are, you may well experience those things in the freer world. I think the question that you get to when you put it in the, uh, are we experiencing it as Americans is, is it being legislated in a way yeah. that can be tracked? And because that's when human rights organizations step in. Yeah. If it's to be expected, if persecution is to be expected and there's a wide range, then when do you step in to help? You step in to help when you realize that human rights are being violated. So, your thoughts on that one, Corey? I mean, I, I'm in totally agreement. So, the organization that I'm here with now is called Christian Solidarity Worldwide. We're 40 years out of the UK and I'm about 20 years out of the US. Um, and I am a CEO, not a um, trained advocate. And what I mean by that is a very um, important distinction, meaning there are people who have degrees upon degrees who study this intently. And that is the one thing I'm trained in as CEO and representative of my organization is not to put in the Western sphere the persecution that we see in 80% of the world. Um, and because the reason why that's important is that when you conflate those two, then it delegitimizes the voices of those who are really dying mm -hmm. out here in these streets, guys. And so that, that's why I'm a little careful, but to your point, one of my board members, Judd Bershaw says from, from microaggression to martyrdom, meaning that there is a gamut. And I think for the American population, because we're 78% Christian in America right now, this next generation is clocked around 40%. Y'all, we are going quickly into the minority, right? The power dynamics are shifting very quickly. Um, so I do think we need to understand that there is gonna be a situation where we will not be the majority culture. Yeah. We will not have power and dynamics and privilege in that. And I do think you're gonna to start to see a lot more situations and we're gonna be way more for reflective of our brothers and sisters around the world and in the ways in which they may have seen persecution yeah. than not. I think it's also worth mentioning too uh, that, how, that, that Persecution is d often determined by politics, mm -hmm. uh, history, mm -hmm. and culture. Yeah. And you can have cultural aggression and have all, the, have all the constitution in the world to protect your religious freedom. But, mm -hmm. you know, there are, there, there are places in the world today that have constitutions that say, yeah, sure, you can have religious freedom, what? but you are considered a minority, a dirty minority, mm -hmm. if you name the name of Christ. Yeah. And you're not trusted in the marketplace mm -hmm. because you've been told in school, those people, they, 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 they don't do business right. They're, they don't trust them. They're Christians. So you can have a cultural aspect, too, that completely works against um, the, the freedom that's granted by your constitution. Now, I'm sure we've got some number of people in the room who have experience, travel, connections, missionaries, indigenous church leaders that they support. And so there's probably a you know, good bit of awareness here. But let's, you know, you guys are working in these areas professionally. I'll start with you, Karen. Uh, is there a particular part of the world that worries you the most right now? 
and I've been I've been working in this realm for about uh, 20 years or so. And what I've noticed during that time is that it does change. You know, the different places that, that rise to the top of concern lists change over time. Yeah. Of course, sadly, in other ways, they, they stay the same. Um, some of the countries have never changed there. And I think also people would be surprised by some of the places yeah. that are most difficult. So I think especially an example to me would be that I don't know if I'd put them number one, but they're pretty near the top of the list would be India. Um, and a lot of people don't necessarily think of India yeah. as being the most difficult place, but especially northern India, yeah. the levels of violence yeah. toward Christians are, are so incredibly severe. And have escalated in the last five to ten years. Well, because of a political right. dynamic within yeah. the leadership right. of, of, of India, which is itself obviously a very complicated place with a massive Muslim population right. as well. So I can tell you that there are areas of concern um, that I wouldn't say I'm, I'm more worried about. I'm, you know, I, I, I pray for many different areas, uh, but there are some that are, interest, that are interesting to watch because of how the dynamics are at play and how Christians are persecuted. Um, Afghanistan was number one this year. On open doors, open doors has a has the world watch list. It is such a wonderful resource. Their research is tight, and it's solid. So they unseated North Korea mm. as number one. Yeah, it can't be good if you're unseated. That's huge, North wow. Korea. right? Wow. So there are ones that we watch because the Afghanistan situation escalated so quickly. And you see that story in the podcast, the Gospel Coalition did such a from good Sarah Zylstra. Sarah Zylstra did a fantastic job. If you haven't listened to that episode, boy, she captures the fog that the most that all of the advocacy organizations were experiencing last August when Kabul fell. Um, another one that is uh, really interesting to watch uh, is is uh, in particular China. Mm. Uh, because they're because of the surveillance situation. Well, it seems as though the situation in China has gotten much worse. I mean, I think five years ago, all of the conversation I was hearing was very triumphal about the the growth numbers, the size, the some of the openness, and things like that. I mean, we were doing conferences. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's interesting. The Gospel Coalition was doing, and with some of the partners that we have here, mm -hmm. was doing an event. I mean, with leaders from Wuhan, yeah, in January of 2020, yeah, and they were they were blocked mm -hmm. from leaving. Yeah, um, our leaders still went forward with that, but again, that was we didn't know much there. But you know, I've been asking people. I even asked a senator recently, "Do you think technology is going to make authoritarianism easier or more difficult?" Because you think about the internet, how can you shut down the internet, right? You know, there's always a way around. And it does appear China, through COVID, is showing us yeah. that technology is a very powerful, powerful advocate for social control. And it's not just Christians. It seems it's, it's the, entire, yeah. the entire That's country. Right. That's right. And the social credit system oh that's gosh, developed yeah. there. Can't travel, can't yeah. purchase, the yeah. more electronic these if things If you have a, a low social credit score right. that functions, like you can, um, uh, there's a China Aid and China Partnership, both do a fantastic work on yeah, great groups. sort yeah. of, uh, and, you know, breaking down how those things um, are working out for the population and for Christians. But it's interesting um, to hear uh, how the church 
feels about herself in some of those places and how they feel like we've actually, yes, we've been consistently persecuted, but we've really fallen asleep in some areas. Yes. Yeah, when you're talking to yeah. they're, they're like, oh yeah, they, we've lost our edge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're praying for revival, yeah, even right. in the midst of persecution. Yeah. And which brings me to another point. It's, 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 I feel like I can't just only watch the places where it's really hot. Yeah. I also watch the places where the church is really complacent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Good, because that's, that they're also walking a very dangerous edge as well, where the church is asleep, the church is distracted, the church mm -hmm. is idolatrous. Yeah. And, um, well, those were the warnings in, in Revelation. That's right. The church is of Asia Minor. You think right. about Don't want to lose your, your lamp in your lampstand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They were not necessarily, I mean, that was in a broader environment of persecution, yeah. but a lot of it was not... You need to be so worried about the persecution. It was more about the spiritual life, That's the vitality right. on the inside. Yeah. Corey, do you have a particular place that comes to mind? Yeah. Um, Nigeria. I was, I, I was going to wait to see what you said, but it's not just this recent bombing, I assume. It just, which was so shocking because it was in the South. Yes. We expect this it's from Kaduna North. State yeah, or Ja, you know, yeah. places like that. Yeah. Um, so some of you guys may or may not be aware of what the situation is in Nigeria, but Nigeria is split roughly from the north more in um, Islam and then in the south more Christian influence. Um, but more and more increasingly, you start to see Islamic um, extremists out of the Boko Haram and his fraction group called ISWAP come in and invade places of peace in Nigeria where Christians are trying to flourish. Oftentimes you see the most vulnerable are women and children. Uh, children are at all times under um, is immense amount of fear because the, the men come in mass armed and ready to take them out. And when they take them out, either they kill the young boys and they take the girls to encampments and then they trade their bodies or they force to convert them over to Islam. Um, the most recent, um, well, let me back up by saying this, um, the United States government um, back in the 90s were able to push through something called the Religious Freedom um, um, International Freedom Act. And that was helped offered by a senator at the time called Frank Wolf. Frank Wolf has said Nigeria is going to be the next Rwanda. It is set to be in that much of an implosion. And so to see that the church ourselves are silent while our brothers and sisters are slain, it floors me. Um, but in the most recent attack, even in Kaduna itself, as you were saying, um, is also quite uh, overwhelming to hear. Our organization reports out that in this region of Kaduna, you had masked men coming with, um, and these are Islam extremists, right? So not Islam, but Islamic extremists come in with turbans and um, AK-47s maxed out into this um, providence of Kaduna. And they're on the back of motorcycles, uh, three men to a motorcycle, about 150. So that racks up to about 500, 450 of people coming in to invade this space. Um, well, not only do they burn homes, but they burn churches, the free and joke churches there and they burn down those spaces. But interesting enough in this particular attack, which is really alarming, is not only that the men come with their own um, AK-47s, and you would have to say, how does a terrorist organization, essentially bandits, get such firepower? That should make you think, what, where are you getting this from? Where are your resources? We know it's off the back of young girls when you're trading, so there's a money power there. But it's always been alluded to, and this is me saying it, not CSW, it's been alluded that the government themselves may be supplying because of this ethnic um, dynamic of Fulani um, and how they are favoring the Fulani ethnic group, which is comprises much of the terrorist group. But not to get too much in the weeds, but when they came in, and to wrap up, when they came in, they came in also with air support. What bandit do you know can come with a helicopter? 
came in with a helicopter to provide coverage to allow them to go out and pretty much it, it, whoever was left to eradicate that place. That is what I'm talking about when we talk about persecution of Christians. We're talking about real lives, real people who only want to worship our Savior, who are literally being slaughtered because of the name of Christ Jesus, but yet they will not back down. And so I just think there are a lot of areas of focus, um, just like Nigeria, but I would say that the church, we just need to wake up. The ones who have power, I'm saying this for all of Americans who have power, who plead the name of Jesus. Privilege. We Privilege, we have privilege. We need to wake up and we need to move and we need to start opening our mouths. Let's jump straight to this. We've got about 10 minutes left here. Um, we can pray and we should, you know, close this session uh, before we end in prayer. We can pray. What's the next thing I can do? Start with you, Karen. Go to your local organization. Well, not local, but go, <laughs> go find. There's so many organizations, good organizations, uh, solid, that are doing good work on the ground. Um, go to one of them. You may already be subscribed to their newsletters. They may be sending you a prayer newsletter. Find out what kind of training they have. Become an ambassador in your own local congregation. Um, there are opportunities with some, I know International Christian Response has, gives you the opportunity to support a particular church in a particular region. Like, it can get personal. Um, and so there's, there's just all kinds of opportunities through your local organizations that are set up and equipped to train you well. They'll give you prayer training, which you definitely need when you start moving in these spaces, but they'll also set you up with the opportunity to make a bridge between you and your local church and a geographic bridge, a linguistic bridge, and a spiritual bridge, the whole deal, and help to reconnect the places in the body that have become numb. Mm. And, it's, and I see this happening. The extent to which we do this is the extent to which we see the body of Christ reanimating mm. around the world. And it's a beautiful thing to see. I've never, I've, in the, the, I mean, I've been doing this about 25 years, and I'm watching this undercurrent mm. of people here where we are in the freer world talking now to others across geographic mm -hmm. and linguistic lines through organizations. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. So it's a, it's a, to the extent that you can do that, that's a wonderful next step beyond how can I pray? How can I give? We were talking at lunch about, um, we have this, the Edmiston Center, our, one of our phrases is we're moving from advocacy to education. Yeah because there's a lot we can learn yeah. from our brothers and sisters overseas, so. Well, especially because of the dynamic that Corey yes. talks about there of what you saw up close and personal in campus ministry, mm -hmm. you, working with those younger generations in that environment, you can get a pretty strong glimpse of what's ahead mm -hmm. for the rest of us. And you can see we're going to have to learn from them and what you and I talked about, Karen, as well at lunch is not only the resources of the global church today and historically, but the resources historically, especially of the persecuted church in the United States, which of course is the black church uh, there as well. So that combination has a lot to teach us. And I would say the gap between knowledge and 
action from that knowledge is pretty wide at this point yeah, in terms absolutely. of you know so we can we can make a lot of progress simply through knowledge sure i think we got some progress to make there so corey next thing after we pray and what was the next thing to do thank you for mentioning i you don't oftentimes hear and this is not a civil rights movement moment but the fact that you mentioned that the black church was persecuted in the states that is such a helpful framework because why instead of shame in that what we can do is look back in that and see what jewels can we pull out to help us today yeah. do you see that like there's something redemptive there for us all i just want to say thank you colin for mentioning that and, and pausing for that well i, I mean I, I know some sometimes the biggest things that are happening are the things that you take for granted mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is when you consider American history, the fact that African-Americans would be in many ways the most religious, most Christian group in the United States is the most crazy God wrought miracle you could ever have imagined. How how, how does that make any sense that those people who were transported under the most heinous circumstances and treated in the most horrible ways, God would somehow work through that and build a persevering church through that, that can then centuries later continue to resource the majority church falling. I mean, only God can do that. That's my God, y'all. That's our God. God, Only God can do that. So anyway. No, it's just really cool. I was like, okay. Additional to that, um, I want to say thank you guys for being here. Um, me and Carolyn keep talking about this. This is our second time speaking on this while we've been here. And oftentimes the room is scattered. There are not many people here who care about these issues. So your presence, first of all, was a step. Just know that. Know that you being here, sitting here, taking notes, listening attentively. I just want to say thank you for your time. Um, second to that, um, and people don't always use this, but I, I know you said this too, and Colin, but prayer is essential. Because when you step into this work, my God, you will get toe up. <laughs> I mean, emotionally, physically, spiritually, it is not okay over here. Um, because you're suffering. You're, you're, it's like a vicarious suffering. You're entering into the storyline and you're praying for it. And, and honestly, the discipline that's not talked about much, you're fasting for it, interceding on behalf of others. And so that work, as Karen does it often, and I myself am covered in it usually, um, is prayer and fasting. So if you want to say, what spiritual disciplines can I have in my life to help me to be able to buffer myself against what is coming in here I would say prayer and fasting and then lastly um, I would also say talk with your pastor Um, in the last um, session they talked about what would it look like and who in here whose church is even doing this type of work and not many people raise their hands and so I would venture to say bring your pastor into these conversations allow them to listen to the podcast allow them to listen to other resources that TGC has but really get your pastor involved because once the pastor heart is gripped the church will follow so that would be my next steps. Uh, Karen, I'd like you to close this in prayer, but I want to ask one kind of encouraging question here. And I know this, you guys will have good answers on this. You could travel anywhere right now <laughs> to meet with some of these Christians. Where do you go? I can't say it publicly. <laughs> <laughs> you can't pick favorites? It's like no, asking no, what your favorite it's not child so much is. that. It's like if okay. I want to go, then there'll be a record of me saying I'm going to go. I'm trying to travel incognito here. Um, well, you can just tell me what you love about that place that you can't tell us about. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I would like to be present when... I would like to be present 
connected, and I know it's virtually impossible for me to be, so I can say it. I'd like to be present when Jesus shows himself to North Korea. My God. Oh, oh my Amen God. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to be, that. I'd just like to be a fly oh, on the wall yeah. um, for that moment because those saints, mm. whew, they change the way I even frame worship when you can worship in a latrine because it's the only place where you can worship God and sing to him without being molested mm. is, and you, and he meets you there. Yeah. And he makes it a tabernacle. Oh my God. I mean, I, I just, I want to see their faces when they behold their Savior. Yes. I love that. Makes me think. My, my kids watched um, one of the movies about Corey and Betsy Ten Boom. Mm. And that's what I always go back to. The Christ is deeper still. That moment there. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's right there. Corey, where would you go? Um, I keep bringing up Nigeria, so I'll maybe pivot off them for just a moment. Um, and I'm going to go back. Um, so Leah Sherbu, when she returns back from her captivity of yeah, being um, taken over by Boko Ram, 14-year-old girl, stood her, stood her ground, still in captivity today, when the Lord chooses, I believe, on the side of glory to bring her back to her family and bring her back to the people who've been advocating on her behalf, I want to be there, guys, and I'm going to hit the floor. You ain't going to see what's going to come up out of me. It's going to be a praise. And so that's what I want to be there for. I love that. Amen. Close us in prayer if you could, Karen. If we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Heavenly Father, thank you for those that you've brought today to understand better how your body hurts, how your body heals, how your body raises its face towards glory like Stephen the martyr mm. and beholds their redemption drawing near. Father, I pray that you would Cure us of our spiritual sleep. Cure us of our spiritual analgesia. Begin to connect the sinews and the synapses and the, the, the muscles and the tissues and the bones and the connectors all across the globe of your beautiful body that you gave yours to unite. Do an amazing work out of this moment today in each heart, each ear who listens, each mind who comprehends that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you will keep your promise made when you breathed life into the first man and carved the first woman out of his side, that you will keep a people for yourself you will harmonize them around your throne at the end and the beginning of all things and that you will be our God and we will be your people. We thank you for this time. Bless TGC. Bless Colin as they continue to do the work that you've called them to do. And we thank you for all these things in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, 
head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospelbound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. Thank you.